Hello, guys. Uh, I'm so privileged to be here, and I'm so happy to just to get to come and be a part of this. Um, I think a lot of you guys know me, but if you don't know me, then that means you should come and visit Thrive Kids App sometime. Because if you come to Thrive Kids App, you will most likely see me because I'm leading worship there most weeks. I'm the worship director there for Thrive Kids App. Um, now I'm especially excited and privileged because I get to come today and preach the word. 99% of the time when somebody invites me to their thing, they're like, hey, can you come lead worship? Because that's what I've done for the last seven years. But today I get to do something a little bit different. I get to preach, and I'm so thankful because I always love the opportunity to get to come and share about the Bible. Um, and I love this series that you guys have been doing, the, the greatest story ever told, I think. The Bible is, in fact, just that. Um, I appreciated what, what Jake Chambers had to say last week um, as he spoke about the resurrection, which is the focal point of the story. Um, so thanks, Jake, for taking the most important part, um, but I guess I can forgive him. Um, but I love what he had to say about it, that uh, what you believe about the resurrection, and he said that if you believe that story, then that becomes the most important part of your life. It, in fact, defines your life. And I think that's true because it defines your eternity and the state of your soul. Now, Tonight we get to look at a piece of scripture that shows what it looks like when that story defines your life. In Acts, we get to see the aftermath of Jesus' resurrection, how that single act changed the course of the disciples' lives and, in turn, changed the course of history, starting a movement that is still rippling across the world to this day. Today we're going to look at the birth of the church. Um... Before we do that, I'm just going to pray one more time. Can't go wrong with more prayer. Uh, Heavenly Father, I just ask you to use my words and speak through me. I pray that if there's anything that, uh, that I have planned that you don't want me to say, I pray that I won't say it. And that if there's something you want me to say that I don't have planned, that you would speak through me. And Lord, I just ask that I would not get in the way of anything that you want to say tonight. Lord, I pray that you would be working powerfully just in this group of people and in all of us, that this would be a place where your kingdom is built and people see you in the way that people love each other here. I pray this in the name of your son. Amen. All right, so looking at the birth of the church, we're going to be looking in the book of Acts, and we're going to read all of chapter 2. You can see the handout is, is pretty hefty. I don't know if you like had to uh, like heave a little bit when somebody handed it to you, but it's a big old stack of papers. Um, and in this chapter... There are three main things that happen. The disciples experience a miracle, and this inspires Peter to give a sermon which ignites an explosion of Christianity and gives birth to the church. The whole passage can be summed up basically by, by that sentence, those three things. The disciples experience a miracle. Peter gives a sermon which ignites an explosion of Christianity. Now, in order to understand this passage, we have to talk a little bit about background. And yes, I'm sorry, I'm going to do that thing that preachers do where they uh, have the little mini pre-sermon before their actual sermon. So then when they've already been talking for like five minutes, they say, okay, let's get started when, you know, I've already been talking. But background is important. So we need to know what happened before in order to understand what's happening here. So anyway, let's get started. Um, Acts chapter 1 tells, this, 
tells us that uh, Jesus stayed with the disciples and taught them about the kingdom of God for 40 days. And at that point, Jesus gets all the disciples together, and he says to them in verse 8, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And then after he says this, he floats on up to heaven. He just, just, <laughs> I, I always find that part just fascinating and a little bit strange, you know, that after, after he says his final words, he just goes on up. And I always, I wish I could have been there, you know, to just see what that looked like, you know. Um, but anyways, this is what Jesus leaves them with. However, that's not the first time that Jesus has told them this. This was Jesus' plan from the beginning. And if you go back and you read John 16, Jesus tells his disciples there that he will be leaving them. But when he leaves, he will give them the Holy Spirit. Now, the disciples didn't always understand Jesus when he was trying to tell them what the plan is. um, Because often the disciples were too busy trying to get Jesus to smite the Romans um, and make Israel the top dogs. But Jesus was very clear from the beginning that that wasn't the plan. But instead, he would be killed. He would rise from the dead and they would receive the Holy Spirit. So now that we know all that, let's get started. And now I'll get to the real sermon. Uh, Let's look at the story of when this takes place. And I'm going to open up to Acts chapter 2 and just read the first section. This is the coming of the Holy Spirit. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all those who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear, each of us, in his own native language, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans, Arabians, We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others, mocking, said, They are filled with new wine. This is the word of the Lord. Ah, I've always wanted to do that. (laughs) This is the power from the Holy Spirit that Jesus was talking about. And it is spectacular. First, there's a sound like a rushing wind. And then there are these tongues of fire that rest on them. And suddenly people start talking. Different people from all over the known world. And something amazing happens. Every person there understands them. As if they were talking to them in their native language. Can you imagine what it would be like to experience that? Like, how crazy would it be if Michael got up here and started preaching in Italian, and yet each, each one of you guys were like, oh yeah, I, I, know, I know what he's saying. Um, like, my brain can't even fathom how that would work. Like, is God changing the sound waves as it leaves his mouth, like, before it reaches my ear so that it turns into English? Or is it like, am I hearing 
would I be hearing words in another language and then my brain would just somehow automatically know? Like, I don't know. But, but yet, the power of God made that happen. And that's the awesome thing about miracles is that there's, we can't really understand how in the world that happened, and yet the power of God did it. Let's look more at this passage to see what we can learn. Um, the first thing that I think is really cool about what happens here is the timing. It says that this took place during the day of Pentecost. This is also called the Feast of Weeks. Um, in the Old Testament, this was a festival that took place during harvest time or seven weeks after Passover. And it meant that tons of people would have come to Jerusalem in order to celebrate it. A lot of these people would have likely been people with Jewish heritage. Um, and some of those people would have been ones that were kind of spread to different parts of the world because they were refugees or captives from various wars that took place over the, the three or four centuries prior. Um, I don't know, you, you guys actually probably went through this earlier in the year, but there were a lot of wars. There were a lot of times when Israel was conquered, uh, liberated, reconquered again, and Israelites were taken away and moved to different places. And a lot of these people might have been refugees fleeing from the wars that were happening too. And so a lot of these people would have had a Jewish heritage, but they would have grown up in a different country, speaking a different language and having different cultural norms. But they would be visiting Jerusalem because it had importance to them. It was part of their cultural identity. I think it would be similar to, like, if a lot of you have maybe some German in your blood, you might try to visit Germany during Oktoberfest because there's cultural importance there. Um, and just like Oktoberfest, you would have also had a lot of people coming from all over um, that maybe weren't necessarily Jewish but just wanted to come and see what the celebration was about. Um, so you have all these people, some Jewish, some not, a lot of them likely with a Jewish heritage but just coming from all over. And that is when this miracle happens. And timing this miracle at that time is an absolutely genius move on God's part. And it's the perfect backdrop for this particular miracle. You see, when Jesus told them about the Holy Spirit's coming, he said that they would be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. He didn't just want one city or people group to be saved. He wanted word of this to spread throughout the entire world so that they would know who Jesus is and what he had done. So when these outsiders from all over are visiting Jerusalem, maybe, maybe some of them were there during Passover and they heard about this Jesus guy who did all these miracles, was supposed to be the Messiah, but was crucified instead. And maybe they heard stuff about him coming back from the dead and Maybe they're not really sure if all this was true, but they keep hearing things, but then, bam, this happens, and they're certain that the Son of God did, in fact, rise from the dead, and they know this because some guy told them an Egyptian, and they're not even from Egypt, but somehow they knew what he was saying. I think it's interesting also that Luke... Uh, the author writes out a list of all the different nationalities of the people there. You've got Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans, Arabians. I think this is cool for several reasons. Um, I think it's more than just a list, um, because I think details like this add to the historicity of this passage. 
that Luke was trying to give an accurate account, so he put in work to try to record where were all of these people from. I think if you're making something up, uh, you just do something lazier, like, and people from all over the place came and heard. But no, but Luke puts in the work. He tries to give an account with accuracy and reliability. The other reason I think this is cool is it shows just how diverse this group of people were and how amazing this miracle was. I think there's no way you can like rationalize what happened here by trying to say that like there wasn't really a miracle. It was just that like, you know, they were saying this word in Aramaic and the root word is related in some way. Um, and so, you know, it maybe wasn't quite their native tongue, but they could like get the gist. I don't think I don't think that you could say that that's happening here because there were people from all over the Roman kingdom, thousands of miles apart, and it says that each one heard it in their native tongue. And speaking of tongues, let's talk about these tongues of fire. It's a really interesting part of the passage, and I think it's a little bit hard to understand. And I'll be honest, it's not quite clear what exactly Luke means by this. Um, it says that divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. Some scholars think that maybe this is what it looked like when the Holy Spirit came upon them. That when, you were, when they were filled with the Holy Spirit, like they looked like they were on fire. Um, and there was sort of this, you know, this imagery of like flames licking them. In fact, it's kind of interesting. There's some medieval artwork that uh, depicts little flames resting on the disciples' foreheads. Like they just have little flames um, right on them. And that's, I thought that was an interesting way to uh, interpret that. Um, some scholars think that maybe this was more of a metaphorical description of what was happening, that because they spoke in other tongues, that it was, their words were changed, that God gave them tongues of fire, that their words were what was fiery. You know, that because they were speaking through the Holy Spirit, it was like fire coming out of their mouths. Um, I'm not sure exactly what he means by that, but that's something I would encourage you guys to study more on your own time. Look up. Tell me what you find. I think that would be really cool. Um, so after all that, um, towards the end of this section, you see the whole purpose for the miracle. The whole reason behind God pouring out the Holy Spirit in this way. I think the reason for this miracle is that is what they say, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. God doesn't do miracles to show off or create a spectacle. He does miracles to build his kingdom. He does miracles to bring healing knowledge of himself to the world. I think it's easy to get caught up in the grandiosity of miracles and want to spend all our time reading about that and trying to figure out like, oh, how can, how can we make miracles happen? Like, how do we pray hard enough to make, to make miracles happen? But I think we see in this passage that the reason for the miracle isn't the miracle itself. It's to set the stage for the preaching of the word. Because honestly, miracles aren't what save us. It's the word. It's the acceptance that Jesus died and rose from the dead. That's what saves us. So we can have all the miracles we want happen around us, but that's not what's going to save us. So the miracle is to set the stage for the preaching of the word, and that's what happens next. Um, so we're going to dive into that, and we're going to read the next passage. And this is 
Definitely the biggest chunk, so buckle up. We're, gonna just, we're just going to power through and read this whole huge chunk of scripture. So after they said that others were mocking and saying that they were filled with new wine, Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even all my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised, from the, raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you, and for your children, and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this wicked and crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. Let's try this again. This is the word of the Lord. Nice work. <laughs> wow. There is a lot there. Peter's sermon there is 
packed with references to the Old Testament. Um, there's three of them, and there's a lot going on there. And honestly, those could each take up a sermon on the, in and of themselves, uh, not to mention the stuff he says in between and after. But I want to quickly go through it and just point out a few things of importance. The first thing is that we see that the people around that witnessed the miracle wanted to rationalize it. They wanted to say that, oh, these people must be drunk or something. Their first instinct is to make sense of things in a way that is easy to wrap their heads around and doesn't require anything of them. They don't want to believe that a miracle has actually just happened because it's easier to believe that you passed by some drunk, crazy people on your way to the festival than to stop and consider the implications of what just happened and to stop and consider what they're saying. But Peter addresses them. He says, no, these people aren't drunk. It's only the third hour, meaning it's only been light out for about three hours. These people probably haven't even had breakfast yet, let alone the time to get hammered. He says, rather, that this is what the prophet Joel talked about hundreds of years ago, that these people are prophesying. And he says this by referencing a prophecy that they would have known about. The prophecy that he cites is interesting. Um, because it uses a lot of universal language. Just like how Jesus told them to be his witnesses to the ends of the earth, this prophecy ends with the phrase, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That means everyone, not just Jews. You see, a lot of Jews, they had a lot of nationalistic pride. They, they were the people of God. Salvation was for them, and they were going to be the ones that ended up on top when the Messiah came. But, but Peter says, no, this, is go, this goes out to everyone. And it, it starts with the people of God, but then it flows out to the rest of the world. And what's awesome is that it's not just Jews, but it's not just rich or powerful people. It says that your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young and your old men will have visions and dreams. And even your servants, the lower class, the have-nots, will have his spirit poured out on them. Peter is saying that it was God's plan all along to give the Holy Spirit and that it is for anyone that wants it and what they just saw was the fulfillment of that plan. What's awesome about Peter's sermon is that he does uh, this same thing several times. He uses the Old Testament to make his argument. And the Old Testament would be the scriptures that all the Jews in Jerusalem would have been familiar with, would have known and he uses the Old Testament to show that Jesus was, in fact, who he said he was. And that what he did was God's plan for, salvation, for the salvation of humanity. And Joel is just the first passage he uses. He goes on to say that Jesus of Nazareth, this man who did all these amazing things in your midst, who taught with authority, who did miracles and helped people, he was the son of God, this man that you executed. He said that this man that you executed could not be contained by death. He says that this is what God knew had happened, had planned, but he rose again. And the reason why is found in Psalm 16, where David is actually prophetically looking forward to the resurrection when he wrote, you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. When he wrote that, he was talking about Jesus. Hades is, it's similar to the Hebrew word Sheol. You might find that in the Psalms. Um, and it means the place of the dead. Uh, 
a lot of Greeks saw that as this is the place you go when you die. It's, it's like the waiting place or where you wait for judgment. Um, but he's saying Jesus couldn't stay there. He couldn't stay in the dead place because he didn't belong there. He was more powerful than death itself, so he defeated it. Upon first reading of the psalm that he references, it, it looks like David is talking about himself, and he's talking about um, kind of his trust in God using a sort of spiritual metaphor, just saying that God won't abandon him, God won't let him die. However, Peter goes on to say that David actually died and was buried, and is still buried. He tells him that you can go visit his grave if you like. But Jesus is not buried. He rose and is in fact seated at the right hand of God. Therefore, David wasn't talking about himself, but was looking forward to Jesus because Jesus actually did what was written. He continues his argument by citing yet another psalm. He says in verses 34 and 35, For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David clearly isn't talking about himself here because it says, the Lord said to my Lord. Who is David's Lord here? It's the Messiah. That's what Peter's saying. He's saying that David, being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Peter is saying that there's someone greater than David. And in doing that, Peter is going straight for the jugular. King David was one of the most important people to the Jews. He was the king who put Israel on the map, and he made them a great nation. Basically, for all of their history, they were always looking back to when David was king. Always wishing to go back and wanting to, we want to go back to when things were like that, because we were powerful then. But Peter says that Jesus is even greater. He's David's Lord. And after this, he has a huge mic drop moment. He says, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has, God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, I'm just going to keep reading because I think this next section speaks for itself. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children. And for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this wicked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So what do we do when we're cut to the heart, confronted with the reality that we were the ones who put Jesus on that cross? Repent. Be baptized. A couple of weeks ago, uh, Tim Cedarland was here and he spoke about Jesus' death. And he, he said that Jesus didn't just die because he was wrongfully accused and a martyr. 
he died to save the world from its sin. And that's your sin and my sin, and the sin of every single person here. This means that we are in the same position as those people 2,000 years ago hearing Peter's sermon for the first time. This Jesus whom we crucified is both Lord and Christ. But there's hope for us. Peter gives us a response. He says to repent, be baptized, and do so in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And when we do this, we will receive the Holy Spirit because the promise is for us, for them, their children, and all who are far off. And they listened. And that day, 3,000 souls were added to their numbers. And that is amazing. But the awesome thing is that it doesn't stop there. Because this sermon ignited a movement. Remember how earlier I talked about this happening during a festival where a bunch of people were visiting Jerusalem? Well, those people went back to their hometowns and told their friends. And Christianity exploded across the ancient world. The rest of Acts tells the story of how this happened, how Peter kept going. He kept preaching. Uh, and then later on, this guy named Paul joins them. And he starts planting churches. And all along, this movement is gaining traction, getting bigger and bigger, and spreading farther, just like Jesus had told them, to the ends of the earth. And that is still happening to this day. Christians are heeding Jesus' commands and telling people wherever they can about what he has done for them. Now let's circle back for a minute and ask ourselves, what does this mean for us? What does this mean for you and me? Let's say that you have decided that everything Peter said sounds great. You want to accept what he said. You want to repent. You want to follow Jesus and accept his good news. Then what do you do? How should your life be different? Well, let's keep reading. The last section of Acts chapter 2, I think, gives just a picture of what the believers in Jerusalem did and what the apostles did. And so let's look at that and use that as an example. Starting in verse 42, it says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Don't worry, I won't do it again this time. Um, so if you want to live a life that is transformed by the resurrection of Jesus that is what you do devote yourself to the apostles teaching study the word and learn it join a community of believers and break bread with them and I don't just mean do communion on Sundays that's a good thing but for the early church this was a meal that they shared there was togetherness. There was hospitality and generosity. Some people were bringing food for those that didn't have any. Spend time praying and spend time praying together. It says that awe came upon every soul and many signs and wonders were done through them. That stuff does not happen unless you pray. And finally, 
we see that they were generous and hospitable. They sold their possessions. They wanted to make sure that the people among them had what they needed. And they just got together, sometimes in the temple, sometimes in people's homes. But they praised God, and they practiced these things. And it says that God added to their number day by day those who were being saved. I believe this is what church is supposed to look like. This is an awesome picture of spirit-filled living playing out. And I think it's, it's kind of the template that God gives us. That like, when the church was born, this is what it looked like. And sometimes I think it makes me sad that churches don't always look like that today. I don't think God ever intended church to be a thing that people show up to once a week for an hour and then go home and they don't think about it for the next six days. When you look at this passage, you see people doing a completely different kind of church. They were participating and partaking in his community every single day. Not once a week or just when they felt like it. They made their lives revolve around the kingdom of God. And they did it together. They were all doing the same thing. And I think that's a part of the equation that I think gets far undersold. There is power in community. I don't think any one of us could endure as Christians if we didn't have other believers spurring us on. Honestly, I just, I think it also just magnifies the whole power of the Holy Spirit when, they get, when people get together. I have seen amazing things happen when believers get together to pray and live this out. Um, my life is a testimony of how good it is to have a strong faith community and how much you need other people. I cannot count how many times I have been in a dark place and encouragement from a mentor, from a friend, or a fellow believer gave me the strength I needed to keep going. And not only that, I've seen other people's lives changed. I've seen lonely people feel loved and accepted for the first time in their lives. I've seen addiction overcome. I've seen missionaries sent because people were generous. And guys, honestly, Thrive wouldn't exist if it wasn't for people getting together to pray and just live in God-centered community. So I implore you not to neglect it. You need it. And I think pursuing community is an essential step in every believer's journey. We saw tonight how it was God's plan from the beginning to offer salvation to the world and to pour out his spirit on anyone that would accept it. And if you have accepted it, then this is your next step and this is how you are supposed to live it out and manifest it. By exercising love for one another, teaching one another, praying with and for each other, giving thanks, praising God, and honestly just having quality time. That is what the kingdom of heaven looks like. And that is what I think Jesus died in order to build. So I think we should get on board with that and start building with him. Thank you guys. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we get to be the continuation of this story. That we get to take the torch that's been handed down hundreds of generations, starting with the apostles and going on out to the rest of the world. Lord, I pray that you would make us a people that bear that torch well, and that are passing it on to as many people as will take it. God, I pray that you would be known here tonight in this room, that as we pray, you would build strong community that is centered around you. Amen.